Welcome back, everybody. It's Mark Steiner, right here on The Mark Steiner Show, on your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. On Wednesday, Vinita Gupta, who's head of the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division, released their investigation of the Baltimore City Police Department in a press conference, which they started doing last year after the death of Freddie Gray while in police custody. This report comes a week and a half after Baltimore City State's Attorney Marilyn Mosby dropped charges against the three remaining officers connected to Freddie Gray's death. Yesterday, we produced a program on the results of the DOJ report, and we'll be doing so in the coming weeks and months ahead as we continue to discuss this report and ideas made by DOJ and the ideas we're forming on how to reform the city police and change our public safety policies. But today, we're going to bring you a very special documentary presentation as we hear directly from some of the people whose testimony informed the final DOJ report, specifically those complaints that deal with gender and sexuality. Some of those voices are those that gave direct testimony to the Department of Justice. And here's longtime and now outgoing Mark Steiner Show producer, Stephanie Mavronis, who produced this story. When the Department of Justice came to Baltimore, one of the things they were specifically interested in was understanding police misconduct and abuse through an intersectional lens. What does police brutality look like when you're a woman, a trans woman, a gay man, a lesbian woman, or queer person? Then, how are those identities further compounded by race and the reputation of the neighborhood you live in? And do those interactions with police change even more if you're addicted to drugs or involved in the sex trade? You're probably familiar with the Say Her Name campaign, which critiques the framing of police brutality as violence perpetrated against black men, which doesn't acknowledge the many black women who die at the hands of police in disproportionate numbers. So in the context of policing in Baltimore, why is it important to understand police interactions and misconduct through an intersectional lens, one that takes into account race, class, gender, and sexuality? Well, we tend to have a male-centered understanding of police brutality that doesn't always recognize the unique experiences that women and gay, lesbian, queer, and trans people have with the police. And we should really see police abuse as a spectrum, a spectrum of systemic behavior that runs the gamut from the refusal to take reports of sexual assault, to unnecessarily invasive searches, to stalking, to disrespect and verbal abuse, to coercing people to be unofficial informants, to physical abuse, to sexual coercion, to death. Because so much of this gendered abuse plays out in private and secluded spaces, it's not usually caught on camera. It doesn't go viral. The way this kind of police abuse plays out is often less visible, but no less structural and important for us to understand. In this special, we'll be hearing directly from a handful of women and one man who share their gendered experiences with Baltimore police. One warning, the content of these complaints, which were all given to the DOJ as part of their Baltimore investigation, is very graphic and at times disturbing. It may not be suitable for children, and listener discretion is advised. If you want to stop listening now and continue at another time, we'll be making this podcast and a transcript available online at steinershow.org. Section 2 of the DOJ report is titled, BPD Engages in a Pattern or Practice of Conduct that Violates the United States Constitution and Laws, and Conduct that Raises Serious Concerns. One of the main findings within that section, BPD's handling of sexual assault investigations raises serious concerns of gender-biased policing. The report cites examples of police failure to take reports of sexual assault, especially when those reports come from women involved in the sex trade. 
a detective asking, why are you messing that guy's life up, to a woman trying to report an assault. An email from a prosecutor who wrote about a victim of sexual assault, quote, this case is crazy. I'm not excited about charging it. This victim seems like a conniving little whore. Pardon my language. To which a Baltimore police officer responded, LMAO, I feel the same. I sat down with Kiera, one of the women who made a complaint for the DOJ report. She talked about her experience trying to report a sexual assault to the Baltimore police. Just a note, the names of the people whose voices are featured in this special have been changed to protect their privacy. Well, if you report it, it ain't like it's going to be reported. Um, I got raped. I well, Actually, I got raped six days after I had my baby. And I told the police, and they was like, what did I do? And I had my hand cut where the rapist tried to cut my throat, and I grabbed the knife, and I got raped a block away from my house. My coat was bloodied all up. And when my sister called 911, the police came first, and all he was asking was, what did I do? You wasn't even, they wasn't concerned if I got raped. I was really scared to answer their questions because I had a warrant on me, but I got raped, and you weren't about what I done. What did I, what I supposed to do to get raped? Who deserved that? You know, you should be looking for, I felt like they should have took me up to the hospital and immediately um, did whatever they supposed to do on law and order. Like, they ain't do none of that. I ain't leave, never leave the house. I never got a rape kit done. They shot me up with some stuff in my arm so I wouldn't get high, so I wouldn't feel the next high. And the ambulance driver did it. The police was right there in my mother's house. All they did was shot me up with a needle. I never got saw. I never um, reported, I reported the rape to the police. I never reported to the hospital because they never took me to the hospital. They shot me up with some kind of stuff in my arm. And my sister wanted to make me come and stay with her. When asked whether anyone from the Baltimore Police Department ever contacted her... Never did. That's like when um, I had my... You remember I lost my baby in jail. You remember I got drugged by police. Car. And I didn't know I was pregnant at the time when I got drugged by this police car. And this is how this mark right here is on my hand. Because I tried to jump on a truck, remember? The police were chasing me, and I got drugged down the street. So they take me to the hospital, They and I'm... Must have been knocked out, but they put me in an MRI machine, and I'm pregnant, and I lose my baby. Yeah, and I couldn't do anything because I didn't know the law, but they killed my baby because they should have never put me in an MRI machine, full-body machine, and I lost my baby. For context, Kiera is a black woman who is a mother and a grandmother who's been in recovery. Even when she herself was experiencing police abuse, she still had the wherewithal to know it was unjust. Kiera loves nature and has a great sense of humor— She's become a fierce advocate, fighting to create a reality where other people don't have to go through the things she went through when she was living on the street and working in the sex trade in Baltimore. She started on the streets at the age of 16 and first had sex with a police officer at 18. She talked to me about the common practice of dating police officers or having them as clients. Yeah, I was 16 years old when I started out there. It was my, Some of my friends was younger than that. You understand what I'm saying? But you got to remember, I'm out there with my little sister, so she was definitely younger than me. It's, it's juveniles, too. I mean, I started out there as a juvenile. So did my sister. So did my accounts, countless of my friends. We, we started off as juveniles. We got addicted. I got addicted in jail as a juvenile. I was 15 years old when I went to Baltimore City Detention Center. And if I went there not from being on drugs. I wasn't on drugs. Didn't know nothing about it. I went there for running away. And they waived my rights. 
My mother couldn't afford to get me out on bail, so I end up in jail. Going to school back and forth from the men's side, me and another inmate, and we started getting packages from the boys on the other side for the other inmates on our side. We was the juveniles that's going to school with other juveniles, receiving packages from steel side. So, yes, the, the whole system is corrupt. Yeah. And they know what, and I, I, I shouldn't have became an addict. I was already sick, but I became an addict in jail. That's what I, they need to understand. I didn't get, nobody introduced me to the stuff on the street. I got introduced to crack cocaine and jail, Baltimore City Detention Center. The DOJ report touches on the police coercing sex. From the DOJ report, quote, one of the women interviewed informed BPD investigators that she met with a certain officer and engaged in sexual activities in the officer's patrol car once every other week in exchange for U.S. currency or immunity from arrest. This is something that Kiara discussed with me and the way that this practice leads to women becoming unofficial informants for the police. I had many encounters with police, but not all of them was bad. Like I said, most, they wasn't all bad because I didn't, they didn't like I didn't enjoy dating them. I mean, I'm just going to be honest, you know, they gave me enough money to get what I want. I was happy. Um, I met one that I didn't even know was the police until he took off his clothes because he was undercover. And that's when he had his badge on. And I was like, oh, you the police. And he's like, police need love, too. I said, okay. <laughs> I sure did. <laughs> and my sister and I was downstairs getting high, so... I would think we could get raided, but we didn't. And he paid me very well. I, mean, I don't think all of them bad, but I think the bad police are the ones that want to fight you and make you do things that you don't want to do. I mean, if y'all hear tricking and it's fair change, no robbery, then I guess that's fair, but that's illegal still. But, I mean, if I'm doing a service for you, you should be giving me my money. This time they're not giving you your money, it's either you're going to jail or you're going to give me some. If they don't want to give you no money, you want to just give them some head or you want to have sex with them, and then you just let you go on your own way to make yourself some money. But they're going to get theirs one way or the other, and you just got to be prepared for it. Here's an excerpt from Kiera's actual complaint to the Department of Justice that highlights the ways certain police officers have used their power to coerce already vulnerable women, those who are addicted to drugs or involved in the sex trade, into having sex or performing sexual acts with them. He was in his police car. I assumed he, he saw me. He started talking to me, asking where I was going, and I told him where I was going. And when he inquired about propositioning me, where well, he propositioned me was, could he go? And I was like, sure. And I didn't care. As long as I wasn't going to jail, I didn't care. I knew exactly what was happening because I heard about him. I knew that either I was going to go to jail or I had to go to bed before. The reason we knew, because we knew about several police officers. Um, it was one that drew the cruiser, and he had shades on. He drove through the day, and all he had to do is look your way, and if you, you looked at him, you nod your head, and that may meet him. You go back there, and you meet the police back there, and y'all had sex is very secluded. But standing in his vacant house, and he knew that it was also another girl. She was standing there, and he would proposition us. He would give us money. he buys buy um, something to eat, and he let us go for exchange for sex, and then we did it. At the time, we didn't care because it kept us safe in the house that we was in, and nobody, we didn't have to worry about the police coming to rob, they raided, because we all got high in there, we took out dates, and then he was all right with it. He even protected our dates. 
He knew that it could be a whole crowd of people and they'd get high. And he would lock none of us up as long as we had sex with him. He would give you exactly what you want. He would let you go cop. He would give you things off his his clothing, like the number, his number tag. He would let you hold the little police cuffs. It's like little police cuffs to his tag. He let you know to hold his name badge to go cop with it and bring it back. And he'd sit in the house while we there. Yeah, because I had to go cop the cocaine. He'd sit in the house. He parked his car. Um, he was the officer that started fighting on the prostitutes that was out there. And he locked me up for um, what's called hindering. And he said I was hindering. I was never taken to jail at all. I sit in the police station next to him. And he made me give him some heat on the way back home. For me to get back to from the police station to the area where I, where I belong to get my ride back. Because this is a long walk from the station house where he took me to back. And I had to give him some ratio on the way back. And I'm not the only one. Kiera recollected a time when she watched that same police officer physically abuse a friend who was also addicted to drugs. He beat her really bad and locked her up. And I don't know what charge he gave her, but just like he beat me. And when he fought me, he scratched my knees up here. And because um, it started getting late, dark, I wanted to make me some money. Well, I went ahead and place this there, I'd be on the street. And when I got out there to go down there to make it, I went to the bar. I actually was going to the store first. And I went to the bar to get something out of the store, and there's Amar car. It was a green car. I said, that's the police. And he grabbed me and locked me up for hindering. Uh, he will beat all the girls. Also in her DOJ complaint, Kiera described being stalked by a particular Baltimore police officer she once had sex with. She and her boyfriend at the time were spending the night in an abandoned house. We were coming inside the vacant houses. Both got put out of the recovery house, so we ended up staying in the vacant house. Broke in the vacant house while we were both asleep. And for him not to lock us up, I had to sleep with him. And he gave me $20 to get us some crack. I was homeless, and so why would I? He was somebody that provided my crack and something to eat. So I was an addict, and I was homeless. He provided the necessities that I needed at the time. That's what I thought I needed anyway. Kiera also described in her DOJ complaint a time when a Baltimore police officer protected a drug house she was staying in, bought drugs for her with cash from his own pocket, and had sex with her. This is the audio from her DOJ complaint. I had just copped, and there was a black officer walking and peeping. He said something to me. He was in uniform, and I said something back. But it wasn't like he said anything like, he wasn't asking me where I was going. He wasn't saying, he didn't make me feel uncomfortable. He made me feel comfortable enough to respond, what's up? You know, and I had on a lower short skirt and I lifted up so I had no underwear. We didn't wear underwear on our skirt. And he was like, where are you going? I said, well, we're going down the street. And he parked his car. I waited there and I opened the door and we let him in. Everybody, people knew. And I told him that the boy was upstairs that I wanted to get my crack from. He gave me money out of his pockets to get my crack. I went upstairs, I got the crack from upstairs, and we came back downstairs. I smoked, and we had sex. I pulled his pants down, and he allowed me to have sex with him. He wanted to have sex with me. I wanted the crack. Kiera also expressed sadness and confusion over who she could trust while she was living on the street. This is also from her DOJ complaint. You don't want to believe people would do you like this, where you end up homeless. And people that you trust, like law enforcement, where you, you go put up for help and they proposition you because the first police I went to, I actually got abused by my friend that night. And I was walking. 
And I copped. Well, my friend got the fight because I had just got off a date and he wanted most of the money. And I gave him most of it. But I was left with 10 hours and I would have had to do all the stuff for it. And I had to get back out of the corner. And I ran to a police officer that propositioned me. And I thought we were to jail. I'd rather go to jail. I really would rather, at the time, went to jail than to do the things I could do for him. I got assaulted in the summertime one time. Actually, in the house. I had got a day today and he beat me. The day tried to rape me inside the house. And I told him about it. And he didn't do nothing. He didn't do nothing but proposition me more. So, you don't, you don't know you didn't know who to trust. You get lost for a long time. Kiara talked about how she was threatened with arrest if she didn't have sex with officers in a secluded area. This same secluded area was described by other women who made complaints to the DOJ and appeared to have been frequented by multiple officers who patrolled that same district. The women is the, is the money makers. I mean, you got the, the drug dealers need the women and the police officers need the women. The police need them to tell certain stuff, to get certain information about drug dealers. And they are the women on the street. They don't want to go to jail, so they're going to snitch a little bit. Sometimes they will snitch. Um, you're just a friend. You're more like, I'm going to do this for you. And then in the case, if you get caught up, you do this for me. A confidential informant, all the police know about them. I wasn't, even though I'm a convict, um, an ex-con or however you want to call it, I, I wasn't in the system with the state to be known as an informant. I was mo- more alone as a criminal. I ain't going. I'm not there to help them. I'm, I was there to commit crimes. They didn't. If you, you know, they would lock me up, but certain polices wouldn't because they knew I was helping them and like stuff like that. Like it was certain houses was raided in the neighborhood, and it was a lot of us in the house. Only few went to jail, but everybody should went to jail that day. But Certain people knew certain officers, and they they let us out. They let us out because we still had a debt to pay, a lot of us. We still had houses that some of them had to hit. We had to be there for them to hit it. We had to be in the house. So we, ain't, we already knew we weren't going to go to jail because we was addicts. We used to addicts had to sit in the house and get that deal of court. I have got a deal of court, and they wasn't looking for that particular deal at the time. But because they couldn't catch this one person, they gave me three bags of ready. They gave me the money to copy three bags. But they couldn't catch the guy because he was on the bike. And so they told me to tell him about somebody else, and I did. You understand what I'm saying? It's like confidential informants, I guess they got numbers. I know I know a few couple of informants, and they got paid for their information. Um, we didn't get paid for our information. We had sex, and we got high. And they were sitting around the company and made sure our tricks paid us our money. Because it wasn't just me tricking with the police. It was me tricking with my other dates. If the police came, they had passed the vacant house. That date, I don't want him to get locked up either. I need that money from him too. It was like this. Like, we sitting around each other. We could sit back and talk. You, oh, you work here. You work here. I don't. I'm a client. And they was my clients too. And I became their client. Too, but it wasn't like a job for me. Like, I'm not on paper. I'm not listed nowhere in Baltimore City or anywhere else as a confidential informant. I'm not a snitch, but I will tell the police certain things at that time to get my drugs that I wanted. Yeah. 
One small note about this next excerpt from my interview with Kiera. When you hear her refer to they or them, she's talking about the Baltimore police officers she's interacted with. You ain't never safe because you don't know when they, because if they got to get their quota, they're going to lock you up regardless. See, it's a certain time that the police have to make their quota. And you just got hope that this day ain't their quota day because you're going to jail no matter what. You could give them a hit, you're still going to jail. You could, uh, they'll let you smoke your last pipe. Hit before you go. You're still going. It doesn't matter. They got to make their quota. The police, they wouldn't lock up the drug dealer. They take their drugs and their money and they pass it along to tricks. So who's the police and who's the drug dealer? This is something I witnessed. We all witnessed it on, around the way. We all do it. All of us have participated in it. We all know who they are and they all know who we are. It's just that some of us got clean. And we still out here, and we still know what goes on around the way. If they're still using, if you clean and, and you're still here, they can't wait till they slip. And that's the honest to God truth. Um, they might see them walking through. They might see somebody having a bad day. They're going to remind them that they're still a junkie. And they probably even offered you something. That's why I hate coming down this way. Because at certain times, certain ones, certain people still recognize me, certain people don't. Certain officers have, and they have propositioned me around the way because they, they, I'm not using, I look healthy, and that's what they want. They want you, if they, they could get you like that, that's even better. They will call you by your street name, and they know your real name because they arrested you before. They'll let you know they got something for you. Sometimes they'll pull you to the side, or they can make you look like you had did something wrong. They'll tell you, sit down. They'll frisk you and all this stuff. And you're like, man, I ain't do nothing. And... They got you now, and they got you where they need you to be, alone. Some people paying attention, some people might not be paying attention. And then they might be like, you still using? They ask you those questions, no. If you ain't using, you might not be good for them, or you might be good for them. They don't know if you need some money. If you ain't got eight months under your belt from getting clean, you still an addict. You still thinking dolphin. You still got the dolphin mentality. It's like you, you feel like you got to have something to keep up with the rest of the people that that's got clean because you ain't got the clothes and you ain't got the looks, you want the hair done and stuff like that. So you feel inadequate because you, you're not living, you're trying to be normal, but you're not normal. You try to keep up so you still keep some of the habits. You get clean and you still trick and some of the officers are still out there. Some of the dealers are still out there. You might not get no drugs, but you will get cash. They gonna get what they want. You don't think it's going to be you. You don't think you'll end up homeless. You don't think you're going to end up being with countless of men and then let alone being with, you think the police will be there to protect and serve. You don't think they're going to proposition you. You, you, you. That's the last thing you think. But then when they do, you're thinking, well, you're still being protected in your sick mind. You know, you say, well, I'm still being protected. He ain't going to lock me up. And he going to give me some money. And I can get my stuff. Well, I feel protected. That's in your, in your sick mind. You feel like this is okay because that's what your brain tells you. It's okay because he a police and he gave you the money and you're doing it in front of him and he still ain't did nothing. So you're safe. I feel safer smoking around him than I would somebody to ask me for, can I have a piece? <laughs> you know, you don't. <laughs> it's, you know, you want to smoke it to yourself. They think it's funny. It's hilarious. And these people... We don't matter. We ain't. They don't. They don't think we matter as normal people. They wouldn't. They wouldn't help us like they would help normal people. It happens every day. It happens all the time. 
And I don't even live in the city no more. But I got friends that live all over the place because they still out here. I, got, I still talk to people. We on Facebook. And it's going on everywhere. The people that supposed to help you end up, once they know that you have this background, they, 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 they play on it. Say like, say like you, you, you are thief. I'm a prostitute. They ain't going to mess with you because your background say you might rob them. You understand what I'm saying? But my my background, because I'm a known, saying that I'm easy. You got to think about it. It's saying that I'm willing to do whatever it is for a price. That's how they look at us. Like, a grocery piece of meat in the market. They size you up and see if they want to pick you. <laughs> That's what they think. They know you. They know every one of us. They know you. And they know what you would do. They know the type of stuff you would do and what you won't do. Before they even pick you up, they didn't already heard. Something that's gotten a lot of attention from the DOJ's investigation into the Baltimore Police Department is the frequency of unconstitutional stops, which in some cases included invasive strip searches. Here's Kiara again. They search you in public. Males. Not that they ain't got just the I was We was told that only females could check a, a female. You have the males checking the females, too. Lifting up your shirt, digging your shirt, digging all in your underwear. It's not appropriate. You're on the street. I don't think you have a right to touch me, but thank God they got body cams now, so if they're going to really use Because they can cut them off when they want to. If they don't want it to be seen, they can cut it off for a second. I don't think they should cut nothing off. What you got to hide that you got to cut off your camera? You ain't doing nothing wrong. Don't <laughs> cut it off. The body cameras are only to put people that, that, that uh, we are all under surveillance. You know, I can imagine some people listening to this just being shocked about what they're hearing and, you know, maybe saying in their minds, like, oh, this must have just been one police officer. You're talking about two police no, officers. There's a lot of police officers. There ain't no one police officer. There's so many police officers in this particular area. I, could, I, could, I can't even count them on one hand. That's how many is in this. Uh, I can't count them on two hands, and I can't count. That's in, just in this. This area right here, it's it's bad. This area, and it's going, it ain't gonna get better. I don't care what nobody say. I don't know why nobody, everybody act like they don't know what's going on. But the people on the street know what's going on, and it been going on way before Freddie Gray got killed. But as much as Kiara sees this as a systemic problem that's deeply entrenched in the BPD, she's been working to hold Baltimore police officers accountable for their behavior towards people addicted to drugs and involved in the sex trade. It's personal to her because many of her friends are still out there, and so is her sister, who recently relapsed after many years clean. I think I, I think I died if I got there, and I don't think I want to be with nobody else. I don't want nobody touching me. That I don't want to touch me any longer. You know, I just I'm scared, and that's my biggest fear. So that's why I talk to my counselors and my therapists, and I, we talk about it in groups, one day at a time. I just, I'm making it one day at a time because I still get scared because it ain't like you don't get broke and you don't still hit them thoughts. It's eight years and I still think about money. I still think about when I have issues, what to do next. And if it wasn't for my friend telling me when you don't know what to do, don't do nothing and brainwash it in my head for years, <laughs> it took countless other people, like I said, to keep saying things to me in my life. And even though you didn't think that it was, I was listening, I was listening, I just didn't know how to use that information at that time. 
the changes came with the people that I met, that came into my life. It was certain um, correctional officers that participated in my life because they seen something in me, and I don't know what they saw, but they seen it. And no matter how much I fought, and they seen some quality in me. And then I learned. It took years for me to start seeing it in myself, and I didn't see it in myself until I started doing some of the things they suggested me to do. Go in and write my poetry, write a journal. When I'm feeling bad, write it down, talk about it. Don't keep it bottled up. So when you're trying to get help from a therapist, a psychiatrist, and these are the things that I need to get help with, it was like it was hard for me to receive them because I didn't believe them because the people that supposed to protect me before did other things, didn't protect me. Like, I've been molested. I've been, had did sexual favors for police officers to post protect me. I did things that I'm not proud of to people that post to love me. You know what I'm saying? And I realized that they just took advantage of me in my situation. And then I forgive them. That's all I could do is forgive them and move on. And I forgive myself now because it wasn't my fault. I was an addict. And it's not my fault, even though I still have, I, I still tremble with the fact that I did all these things, but I was sick at the time. Out there, you don't think nobody's going to ever love you. No, You know, you think you're peace. I know me, I didn't think I was worthy of anything. You know, I, was, I thought I was going to go to jail back and forth. I thought it would be, the, I thought that was going to be a routine for me for the rest of my life. I didn't see myself going away. I thought I would be homeless. You know, and somebody said, you ain't got to be this way. And even though they say it, you don't see nothing out there after they say that. It sounds good, but you can tell me everything's going to be all right. But if you ain't going to put me in a situation to make me feel safe, how do I supposed to believe that everything's going to be all right and you expect me to get clean and you expect me to not to be on that corner the next day, but I'm going to be sick if I don't. If you're still out there, yeah. I will ask them, what's the best way to help you? Because only they know what's best for them. We, we think we can help them, but we can't help them. They'll get you high before you get them clean. They know what they need. They just don't have the strength to go get it. So if they tell you how to help them, try to help them as they need. Not by giving them drugs, but if they say, well, can you just keep take me here? Or, or keep me, you know, let me sit with you for a few minutes. Because sometimes people be tired of getting hot. And they just need a place to just sit and think and regroup. Because they just got a, you know, a lower dose of reality. And they, they trying to clear their mind. But before they can, because they ain't got nowhere else to go, here comes somebody else or something. Or here come a trick that's saying, hey, you dating? You know what I'm saying? You ain't even got a chance to clear your mind. I mean, my prayer was... Lord Jesus, meet me where I'm at, on the corner smoking crack. And he met me. I lied. <laughs> that was the truth, and that was my prayer. Every time I hit that stem, and people say, you crazy. Why are you talking to God when you're smoking? Because I need him. I did a lot of dumb things, so, yeah, I need help, and I'm getting better every day. I've been better for eight years, so I'm glad about that. Kiera's story illuminates how police interactions can become even more complicated when gender is part of the equation. 
So what can be done about it? The DOJ report emphasizes the need for the police department to work to gain community trust and restore important community partnerships as a path forward. Kiera has her own thoughts about what needs to happen before things will change. How you change that? By getting po- screening your polices. You need to screen them and you need to do the same thing you would do for a registered sex offender. You, should, you need to do that with the polices and see if their mind's right. You got them sex offenders looking at these little pictures, let them police see. And then you'll see what kind of police you got working. Because their minds are messed up too because they, they have a sex with little girls. There's some of us out there that's 16, 17 years old. The polices that's having sex with prostitutes, the young girls on the street, just like me. I started out there, I was 16. Say you're trying to do right. You, you, can't, you can't live in these crowded houses. You don't want to go back to the drug house. And you're thinking, that, hey, I'm clean. I'm going to get myself together. I'm going to go find, I'm going to go house. No, apply for me a house. I'm going to apply for me an apartment. Well, they on a, you go through so much just to get this apartment. You might be on a list for 19 years before you get it. You know, and it's just a shame because you got all these vacant houses. Build them up. You can fix them. And then you can put them people in the house, and they'll be in a situation where they can get their lives together. But you're not trying to get their life together. You're putting them in programs where the program's making money off of their little bit of money. You understand what I'm saying? Then they get after they stay, stay, they stay, they got to get out of that program. So when they get out of the program, where is they going? They still don't have nowhere to go. You know, then you go to transition to transition. You can't live like that. Especially these women, some of them got children. Maybe trick babies, maybe not. But regardless, it's their children. You know what I'm saying? They might want to raise their babies. They probably don't want to stay raising their babies. Well, give them a chance and stop making it so hard to get them Section 8 or to get them into a home because they might can afford $400 a month. They might can afford $500 a month. But you give it. My thing is they got drug dealers in houses, you know what I'm saying, and they paying their rent, but they selling drugs out their houses. You know, so it's like, how you, how can he get a house and he's selling drugs? Here, I ain't doing nothing, and I can't get a house. I, I feel sorry for the homeless people. And I know one thing. It took me a long time to get this Section 8 that I got, and I love it. You're listening to The Mark Steiner Show on your source for Cool Jazz and More, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. I'm outgoing senior producer Stephanie Mavronis, and I'm bringing you a special report in the wake of the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division releasing their investigation of the Baltimore City Police Department, which they announced last year after the death of Freddie Gray. A portion of their findings concern the intersections of gender, sexuality, and the police department, and we're hearing directly from some of the people whose complaints made up that portion of the report. We have to take a break, but we have a lot more to share with you, so stay with us. Welcome back. You're listening to The Mark Steiner Show on WEAA 88.9 FM. I'm outgoing senior producer Stephanie Mavronis, and I'm bringing you a special report in the wake of the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division releasing their investigation of the Baltimore City Police Department, which they announced last year after the death of Freddie Gray. A portion of their findings concern the intersections of gender, sexuality, and the police department, and we're hearing directly from some of the people whose complaints made up that portion of the report. 
a reminder, the content of these complaints, which were given to the DOJ as part of their Baltimore investigation, is very graphic and at times disturbing. It might not be suitable for children, and listener discretion is advised. We'll be making this podcast and a transcript of what you'll hear today available online at steinershow.org. Earlier, we heard a testimony that illuminated the context of these gendered police interactions, which appear to be systemic from the experiences of the women and men interviewed and the DOJ's own conclusions. Mark sat down with someone who has seen in her daily work just how commonplace and systemic these kinds of interactions and abuse can be. Jacqueline Robarge is founder and executive director of Power Inside, a human rights and harm reduction organization that serves women and girls who are survivors of gender-based violence and oppression. Before I get to their conversation, I wanted to say that if what you've heard in this program so far is also your experience and you want to talk about it or seek remedy for it, one of the places you can reach out to is Power Inside. You deserve support. Not only is Power Inside one of the many organizations that handled complaints for the DOJ report, they're also interested in connecting with people out there who want to identify solutions. You can reach them at 410-889-8333, that's 410-889-8333, or at contact at powerinside.org. Here's Mark and Jackie's interview. So the Department of Justice came to Baltimore to this investigation after Freddie Gray was killed um, and to see about issues around police brutality and race and police and so with Power Inside and the women you work with from the street, what does that have to do with DOJ and how does that fit into all this? The women that we work with have a lot of encounters with the police. Some of them are difficult. Some of them are violent. Um, some of them are unjust. And like any survivor of violence, they have a right to a remedy or a right to report it. But because the way the system is structured, they often haven't reported it. And so when the DOJ came into town, women started talking about what will change. And so it was a natural next step for us to support women who wanted to do complaints. The DOJ did a lot of extensive outreach into the community. And so some folks had already heard that they were taking complaints. But because of the nature of the experiences that women have with the police, Sometimes they need support, particularly if they have literacy issues or it was very, very traumatizing. We've been trying to help survivors, you know, make those complaints to the Department of Justice. So when you say the women need support, that they're survivors, um, what, I mean, what, what are we saying that's happening in the street? What, what are you reporting is happening between police and some police mm-hmm. and sex workers? So. Uh, so our program works specifically with women. So this, some of the experiences that the, the women have aren't exclusive to women, but I focus mainly on people who've survived violence who are being neglected. And so oftentimes that's women who are sex workers, who are homeless, who have a mental illness, who are vulnerable in some way um, and visible to the police. For example, a woman of color who is homeless might be more likely targeted by the police for a stop, a search, or a questioning if they are, you know, under the gaze of the police. Any police stop um, with a woman takes on a gendered tone uh, because there is a particular culture with the Baltimore City Police Department that informs the interaction. And oftentimes that means that if that police officer is not professional, has 
untreated trauma of their own or is a violent person, they may act in a way that is gendered and also brutal. And so what that looks like is sexual violence, slurs that are, um, you know, gendered, kicking pregnant women, deliberately disparaging women for being bad mothers or easy or promiscuous just for for being out at a bus stop. So not necessarily a woman who's in the sex trade. Not necessarily. So if you are a woman in an area where there is any kind of street economy, drug trafficking, sex trafficking, whatever, um, prostitution, it's possible that a police officer could use the enforcement of prostitution as a a proxy to engage a woman in a conversation, engage in a strip search, coerce sex. Male uh, police officers engage in a strip search? We've had women strip searched on the street in public. Women asked to lift their skirt up, un, undo their pants. I mean, it's really extremely violating Number one, the the search itself. I'm not a lawyer. I can't give legal advice. Right. But the search itself seems somewhat dubious. And then the, the the nature of the search, having someone disrobe in public is quite common. And then when you add to that gendered slurs, it's a sexual assault. You can't disparage someone for being a whore and using that language, asking them to strip in public and not have that be a trauma. And that's why I refer to women as survivors. So this, this, this idea, I think that most people really haven't thought about or even heard gender police brutality that you talk about. I mean, I, mean, I don't think people could even define what that is if they mm-hmm. heard it. Yeah. It's not something we've, you know, you hear about police brutality. You hear about the verbal and physical abuse of citizens and, and the rest. But it's very, very common, but not talked about. So if you look at UN peacekeepers globally and the sexual assaults that they've engaged in, if you look at what's happened anywhere the United States has set up a military base and you have military personnel engaging in sexual violence, the amount of control that mostly male law enforcement, military personnel, or security forces of whatever sort have in a community allows the intersection of power and control over women to kind of be magnified by police and military power. So (laughs) whatever power an assailant might have is magnified if you're a police officer. Are we also talking about women who say they've been not just physically brutalized, but sexually assaulted, sexually brutalized, forced to have sex? I mean, what's the extent of what we're talking about here? There are a range of behaviors that are slurs, threatening behavior while women are handcuffed, very invasive pat-downs that clearly are um, crossing a line into uh, an assault, coerced sex, meaning a police officer might come up and say, if you don't have sex with me, I will arrest you, to um, actual forced sex. I mean, we have to remember the police officers have weapons. They have the they have a radio to call in for backup. Sometimes this happens. Uh, one police officer, although not uh, sometimes there's two police officers, and so they have a lookout for their violence 
in talking to women, it's been shocking to see the extent of um, the types of violence. So we had um, one woman tell us a story about um, being arrested in a house raid um, where she had expressed she was not involved and um, she was not clothed. They handcuffed her. And there were multiple police officers because it was a house raid and they were arresting everyone in the house. And there was a gauntlet of police officers that she had to walk through and she was handcuffed and they were jeering and like making sexual comments and innuendos as she walked through a line of police officers. I mean, it's very insidious because she had so little power in that situation. Not only was it humiliating, but she actually didn't know what was going to happen after she was in the car. Because what we're also hearing is when they're put in the patrol car, if they stop at the station or if they go to a regular place where the police officers know to go, you know, the sexual assault could be happening outside of any any sense of safety outside of the person's neighborhood in a very secluded place or inside a police station. You talk about gauntlets. I mean, how pervasive is this? I mean, is it this? Are we talking about from the experience of the women you work with? Uh, are we talking about something that looks as if we have some really bad actors and rogue officers? Are we talking something much deeper? Well, it's clearly much deeper because it is a national problem. The Associated Press did a story, I think, last year about the number of police officers who lost their lost their badges for sexual misconduct. So it's a nationwide problem. It's a global problem. But in Baltimore City, it's in every police district. And Power Inside has been talking to hundreds of women per year for the last 15 years. There has not been a month that has gone by where we haven't heard a story from anywhere in Baltimore that this is happening. So it, it, it's, it's everywhere. The question I think most people who even listen to this and will hear these stories, I mean, how could this go on? For some, it was hard to fathom, the police, or even for me in a sense, the police department would condone this kind of behavior on the part of their officers, that this is not being stopped nor investigated. Well, I think it's like violence against women. It's minimized, and we're talking about victimizing the most stigmatized group of women that have really very little protections of any sort. So people truly believe that a woman involved in prostitution cannot be raped. And people believe that a drug-addicted woman deserves what she gets, that if only she got drug-free, that somehow she wouldn't be at risk, that a homeless woman is more a sympathetic character than she is a victim of crime. When you add that the police have the power to do what they do completely unchecked, it doesn't surprise me that it just happens. It's a fringe benefit of policing. Sadly, some officers come in and take what they want. And it isn't just sex. It's drugs or money or some other need that they're getting met. And, and so it just – violence against women is part of our culture. And so if police have a particular culture that's unchecked that is violence, why wouldn't sexual violence be part of it? You know, I'm I'm not sure why right. it's so shocking because it's because you think that people from the from the commissioner's office, the mayor's office, state's attorney's office would be aware of this. They're well they're well aware of it. We've had multiple conversations with them in our office at you know downtown, and um, I think 
what happens is we put the blame or the burden of coming forward on the victim knowing how difficult that is. And so I think it's by design that nothing ever gets addressed because they default to saying no one comes forward. But how could they come forward when you've made it clear that they will not be believed? The few times we've had complaints actually go through, they've moved a sexual predator from one district to the other. That is the remedy. And in every district, that person is going to have access to other women. I don't know why that would be an appropriate response to a police officer engaging in sexual misconduct on the job. So this is are these part of the interviews that were given to DOJ? These are the stories that the women wanted to tell um, in service to help the city change. Um, They took a lot of emotional risk bringing up really painful stories to tell the Department of Justice what what had happened at at very difficult times in their lives um, or sometimes not so difficult times in their lives. And they're telling the Department of Justice in hopes that it will stop. And feeling like this is their last chance. They have never been afforded the opportunity to give anonymous complaints. And they fear for their safety. And so the Department of Justice investigation is the first chance they've had to tell their story without having to fear for their safety. You know, when people looked at, nationally looked at the case of uh, Officer Holtzclaw in Oklahoma, who... um, I was convicted of multiple counts of rape and sexual battery against women, sodomy and other kinds of things that he was convicted of. And so this was seen by America as an aberration, as a bad cop who got his due. But what you're alleging and saying in terms of what's really happening with this city, maybe many in most cities in America, is that it's not an aberration. It may not be every officer in the force, but it's more pervasive than we realize. Absolutely. I mean... And it must be something also deeply systemic well, they will not be, I mean, again, as, as we've moved forward to try and really understand the extent of police brutality in Baltimore, we are just now learning about how deep the, the physical brutality is. We already know how difficult it is to report sexual violence for anyone. And so I think we're only scratching the surface by telling some of the stories that we've had. I think there's many, many more, potentially thousands. That was Jacqueline Robarge, founder and executive director of Power Inside, a human rights and harm reduction organization that serves women and girls who are survivors of gender-based violence and oppression. And you're listening to The Mark Steiner Show on your source for Cool Jazz and More, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. I'm outgoing senior producer Stephanie Mavronis, and this is a special report in the wake of the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division releasing their investigation of the Baltimore City Police Department. A portion of their findings concern the intersections of gender, sexuality, and the police. When we come back from this break, we'll hear directly from other people whose complaints informed the DOJ report. Don't go away.
Welcome back. You're listening to The Mark Steiner Show on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. I'm outgoing senior producer Stephanie Mavronis, and this is a special report on the intersections of gender, sexuality, and the Baltimore Police Department. In the wake of the DOJ Civil Rights Division releasing their investigation of the Baltimore City Police Department. A reminder, the content of these complaints, which were given to the DOJ as part of their Baltimore investigation, is very graphic and at times disturbing. It might not be suitable for children, and listener discretion is advised. We'll be making this podcast and a transcript of today's show available online at steinershow.org. Last hour, we heard from Kiera, who talked about how she was coerced into having sex with police officers in exchange for money or immunity from being arrested how police were physically and verbally abusive to her and her friends who were also involved in the sex trade, and how police refused to take reports of sexual assault seriously. It's not just Kiera who has experienced this kind of gendered police abuse in Baltimore, and it's not just one or even a handful of officers. It's a deeper structural issue and a deeper cultural one within the police department. Gail, whose testimony also contributed to the DOJ report, is a black working mom who spent the past few years overcoming the barriers to finding employment with a criminal record, pursuing housing, and facing discrimination on many levels. Yet, she continues to overcome and works as an advocate for women who are homeless, facing homelessness, dealing with drug addiction, and involved in the sex trade. This is the audio from Gail's DOJ complaint. He said, you know I'm a police. He showed me his badge, and you know I'm a police, and it's a favor for a favor. You do me, and you get out right here. You don't, you going to jail. So for not going to jail, I'm going to do them, but then turn around and get, still get locked up for prostitution. Like, say you get in a car, and there's always your word against mine. It ain't no sense because they can touch you. They can fondle you. I can't just touch your breast. Touch in your vagina, touch your vagina, strip you outside. If you if you real if you think that I have drugs on me, take me into an alley, pull my pants down, sweat my butt cheeks open, and do that to me. All because you want to get a free feel. And it's called being debriefed, you know, being publicly humiliated outside. And it ain't female cops doing it; it was males. And and males was not supposed to touch females. They had to call a woman officer to do it. Mm-hmm. They going down your shirt and filling you up mm-hmm. or putting stuff on you and say it was that you had it. And it's still happening to today. You know, thank God that I don't have to live like that no more. You know what I'm saying? But I still see the harassment. You see it all over the TV. You see the corruption. But I'm still a scum, the bitch, the trick, the crackhead. But you still want to see me. You still want to fill me up. You still want to harass me. I had a lot of interactions with the police. I've been getting incarcerated since the age of 18. So I done seen a lot. I done experienced a lot. Being in a lifestyle, as far as from selling drugs to prostituting, you know, I would get, as the days I was prostituting, I would get into the police call that's supposed to be undercover vice. They would say, do a favor for a favor. You give me fellatio, you don't go to jail. And they'll come back, you give them the fellatio, they'll come back, spin a corner, and still lock you up for prostitution. Or I could be sitting down and being harassed for nothing just because they know me. Like, 
you junkie bitch, you know, you ain't never going to be shit but a junkie, you crackhead, you know, you prostitute, get the fuck out my neighborhood, get the fuck away from me, you know, shit like that, you know, spitting all in your face and just real nasty, you know, it, w it was a time where, you know, I would just get locked up because not for no apparent charges, just because they never could catch me in the act. And once they finally caught me, they were so happy. They were so happy that they just would lock me up just for walking down the street. You know what I mean? So I got a lot of disorderly conduct. Because you're not going to just grab me for no apparent reason and call me all out my name and things of that nature. Nia is another woman whose complaint informed the DOJ's report. She's also a black mom who commits her time and energy to advocacy work, especially to get young women off the street. Nia has testified in Annapolis on behalf of people trying to return to the workforce with criminal records, and she's in recovery. This is audio from Nia's DOJ complaint. It was a time when I was arrested falsely, and um, there were some little drug dealers, little friends that, you know, we know because I lived in that neighborhood, and I, I prostituted in that neighborhood. That's where I bought my drugs. At this particular time, I was not buying any drugs. Police came through, harassed the young man, harassed me, and we locked both of us up. I hadn't done anything. They actually looked on the ground and found the empty plastic bag that cracked cocaine in and charged, tried to charge me with it. So they took me down in the police car to Rite Aid parking lot where the police officer, he deliberately kicked me out of the truck that they that they carried us in and get into another paddy wagon. He actually kicked me out, physically mm -hmm. kicked me out. And I, my knees were scarred up and everything. So when we got there, they transported us. I was complaining that my knees and stuff was hurting. I wanted to tell them what happened. So to cover up the whole thing, they decided that they would give me another chance and let me go home. But I did, I, I, I did report it to the sergeant. And um, next thing I know, he went and um, told them to release me. And another incident that I had, there there was um also he got a whole lot of people was complaining about him. He was a, he he would harass. He would come through if I didn't have my ID. Remember, I had to get my ID. Mm -hmm. If I did have my ID, he would lock me up every time for not having the ID. Then he tried to say that I was lying. He he just harassed me. Matter of fact, it was during the spring because we we only had like I had on a little sweater. And he, he had me sitting on the ground, and I had on a skirt. He's like, do you have your ID? I said, you, I said no. I said, you know I don't have my ID. I said, I told you that I'm getting assistance to get my ID. And I told you the next time I saw you, you better have your ID. And he said, well, what, what's your name again? I told him my name. He said, and he typed it up. He said, I can't. When I type it up, and your picture better come with it. Oh, you going down. I'm taking you down to CBIF. I said, well, my, I said, my picture should come up with it. I said, I'm giving you my right name. I gave him my my legal name and all my aliases, and he still swore that my picture didn't come up, and he arrested me. And next time, when I did get out, like two days later, he did the same thing, but he had a partner with him. His partner had a, what, one of them little handheld uh, things that they look up people, and he said, he said, before you take her to jail, he said, let me see if I can look it up. And he did, and my picture came up. And do you know this also actually fussed with his uh, co-worker, saying don't interfere with my interviews. And now I'm not actively in the streets now, but I was randomly stopped down where I live at now 
because of the area that I was in, and it was kind of getting dark, they guess they figured that they wanted to harass me. They stopped me, asked me for my ID. I presented my ID to them. Then they asked me the question, knowing they see my whole record there. Have you ever been arrested before? I said, yes. For what? And I told them, for prostitution and for personal possession of drugs. Then all of a sudden he wanted to say, take my coat off. It was the one in time. And he would search my coat. And they say, we have a female officer to come and search me. And, and at that time, remember when it was raining last week? I had to sit on the ground. And I, yes, and I had just came from my chemotherapy. Yes, and wait for the police lady to come get. And when the police lady came, she actually took me, uh, opened the trunk of her car uh, up and took me right there behind the trunk of the car and actually searched, physically searched me. She physically made me squat and cough, and she went all underneath my breast, all in my underwear and stuff. Did you consent to a search? Did I could he, No, he told me that's what he was going to do. That's, that's what he was going to have done. He said, um... Why you got to walk down this street? Where do you live at? I said, I said, oh, so what have I done? I said, I didn't do anything. I said, I was coming from visiting a friend of mine. He said, oh, well, um, don't put your hands in your pocket. Put, you know, put your hands up. I was like, what did I do? He said, um, just let me search you because there's something tell me that you, you just coming from buying some drugs. You look like you look like you're nervous. I was walking down a known street for drugs. Every street that I live around is known for drugs. I said, I might be nervous, I said, because I have been arrested before, and I said, I know how crooked y'all can be. I said, and I have, I've, I've done everything I can to stay out of trouble. I said, mm-hmm. and, and uh, I said, I just don't like the idea of, of being stopped. I said, I'm just nervous because I don't know what's going to come out of this because I've been treated unfair before. So, of course, I was nervous. And the only thing I had was my money and my door key in my pocket and my ID. And he had laid that up on the on the hood of the car, and she opened up her trunk and took me back there. And that's when she went underneath my bra, started searching my bra, and then she was like, "Can you uh, undo your pants and and pull them down to your knees? Can you squat and cough?" She just lifted up her hood. I guess you could call herself trying to get somebody some privacy. That's a four way street. What kind of cover are you giving me? I mean, it goes. It's terrible, and that, and that happens all the time. To, to a whole, not just me, but to a lot, especially when they run your name and find out that you have have had some kind of law, you know, break, you know, law, law thing as far as being a prostitute or soliciting. Oh, yo, those Lord knows. I only got maybe violated twice where I've had a male officer to reach down in there, you know, try to see where, you know, my breast trying to see what I had. And I know he wasn't supposed to. He said, be quiet. He said, you want me to do this or you rather for, you know. I said, I said, look, just go ahead. I said, you probably just getting your thrills anyway. He said, how would you know? They happen so much, it's just. Uh-huh. I've been asked questions like this, where, how much you charge for head? How, you know, how much you charge for, you know, for the, you know, I'm curious, how much you charge for sex? I was a witness to, to a murder, mm-hmm. and they was transported. Me, me and my husband was in the car. My husband was in the car, too, with me. So we was in, in one of them cars. They were providing transportation because we were, we were witnesses. We weren't, we weren't under arrest or anything. We were witnesses. He said, um, I want to ask you something. I was like, yes. He said, you've been locked up for, 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 for prostitution, right? Before I said, yes. I said, why? Because I've always been curious. How much you charge for heat? And I was like, excuse me. He was like, he was like, and then he asked my husband. He was like, man, what, what you was getting a cut of? They thought it was funny. 
say, because I've been wondering, you know, you say, shoot, you say, my wife, my wife, man, I pay a fortune, I might as well say, get, get me something done. He said, I might come be better off coming out there where y'all are. My husband looked at me. I was so, I was so, I was hurt and embarrassed. I was. And I called myself at that time doing something good to help you. Mm. But th- what I think is so unfair, when somebody helps law enforcement to correct the wrong, to, to get the bad guys, you say, why after hey, you give them help while you're doing it, but then afterwards they just cut you loose, they don't care. They don't care what happens to you afterwards. You say, thank you, bye. They put you out to protection place. They don't, have, you don't, they don't care if you have nowhere to go or not. And, you know, if you're from the streets, you got, you're going to go back to the same place where you were or in that area. And then your life is threatened all because you try to do the right thing. That makes you don't even want to do the right thing. That's why now people don't want to get involved. And, and I know I wouldn't do it again if somebody paid me. Because mm-hmm. my life means more because they, to them, to me, they just throw you away. You know, like, they, like really, they use They use yeah. To get what they wanted, once they got what they wanted, the hell with me. I've been approached by officers, asking me, can they take pictures, have taken pictures of my legs and stuff. And because, because they know that at that time I was using drugs, you know. And we, as ladies, are on the night, we try to try to get as much money as we can to, to support our habits. Plus, that's the police, you know. If you don't do what they say, you're about going to jail. And you're going to be treated badly, and, and you know, they're going to make you sit on the cold cement, and they're going to take their time transporting you, they, and they don't let you go to the bathroom. If you say you got to use the bathroom real bad, they be like, well, you're going to have to hold it till you get the central booking. And the only guard going to take them two hours to get your central booking. They treat us differently. They, they call us bitches, whores, prostitutes, tricks. You know, they, 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 I'm sure that when they lock us up, I'm sure they don't do that. They don't offer men sex favors to put release. I've been offered to give head, fellatio. I've offered to have sex, you know, for, for information, or they're going to lock us up, or just, or just for a favor. I was being transported for luring, and the officer, that, the transporting officer, he said, you know, I've helped a lot of ladies out with little charges like this. He said, because I got a little spot back there, he said, where nobody would see us. He said, this ticket, he said, you know, if, if, if this ticket right here, if I don't produce this ticket, then the, what, what happened never happened. I wouldn't do what I do. I didn't want to go to jail. I gave him some head. He, he told me to just make sure I ain't getting on his uniform. And so he left me right there and pulled off in the paddy wagon and went on about his business. In her DOJ complaint, Nia talks about one officer in particular who was physically violent with women involved in the sex trade and had a woman who was struggling with drug addiction dance on top of a police car for entertainment. This is from her complaint. They said have her dance on top of the hood of the car, naked stripping and stuff with him and his buddies because, they, they, you know, she'd be out of her mind with on the drugs and they'd be laughing and stuff out there in public. He would spit on you. He would slap you in the back of your head. Now, here's his story. I was in an accident, a car accident, with a, with a client. But he didn't know that, you know, and he came to the accident. I wanted a police report number so that I can go to the hospital and there did insurance and everybody, like everybody else. He just, just because I, I was tricking, uh, you know, I tricks. But he didn't know that was a trick. He told me 
I'm not giving you no number because I know that's a trick. I said, no, it's not. He said, you're going to you gonna deny. You're going to stand here, stand here and argue with a, with a police officer. Honestly, I said, he's not a trick. He said, look, either I'm going to lock your ass up or you're just going to go on about your business because you know you're lying. So, uh, you know what I did? I went on about my business because he was going to lock He always threatened to lock you up about something. He is horrible. He should not even have a job. He's terrible. He, 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 he'll, he'll pay you. He pay you forty dollars for some head, and he'll take you to. He have abandoned houses in certain parts, of, but it, it, all this is done at nighttime. They, they, they don't do. They don't. They don't be doing the sex thing in the day. I do not for me. I don't know about the daytime girls because I was more of a nighttime girl. I've gotten paid by him. I seen him. He pulled pulled over because he always pulled me over, you know, cause, you know, chit chat, whatever. And he was like, meet me on the garage right there. And they parked in the alley back there. They pulled back in the alley. And so I, after, he, after he got his car back there and everything, I looked around make sure nobody looking. And I went on back there. And he was like, you know, you know, I always love them legs of yours, don't you? I said, yeah. He was like, what you going to do? What you trying to do? I said, what you trying to do? And he was like, you look like you you don't feel good. I said, I said I'm coming down. I said, I said, you know, I said, what you want? I said, because you wait. I said, you know, time is money and money is time. That used to be my favorite thing. He was like, come here, give me your hand. And I gave him my hand. And he put it down there on his on, on his clothes where his private part, where his little penis was. He had, he had my hand rubbing up and down, up and down on it. And then... He unzipped his zipper and he was like, come on. He said, he said, I've been wanting to do this with you for a long time. He said, come on. He said, and he said you know, we keep this between ourselves. I said, yeah, I know. So I got on the, on the passenger side and I got in the front and I went ahead and gave him some head. And he said, and he was another one. Don't get, just don't get it on my uniform. And after we finished, I got out and he gave me $40. I got out and said, thank you. And I hauled ass to go get me some drugs. I got stabbed in the alley. I got stabbed by somebody that I had told no to. I didn't feel like I didn't want to trip with them. And they just snatched me in the alley. And I got stabbed up in my back and my neck. That's what's wrong with my finger right here. I, got, I grabbed a knife to keep from them stabbing me some more. But anyway, when I got to the hospital, the officers that was um, at the scene came to the hospital and they wanted to know what happened. He said, he said, and we had a report that you don't have no underwear. I don't know how they found out you had no underwear. He said, and we can't make a we can't make a, a complaint for you because you were in the process of, of prostitution. I said, I want to press charges. You know, I'm, I I can describe the person. And he was like, well, why we heard that you had no underwear on and, and we really can't make no complaint for you because you was in the act of prostitution. And I told him, you know, I'm sitting laying in the hospital bed with stitches and stuff, sitting in my neck, my hand, my bag and everything. And I'm like, no, I wasn't. And he told his partner, come on, let's go. Let's go to the next one. And just ignore what I said and kept right on going. Did they make a police report? I, you know what? I don't know because nobody never followed up on mm -hmm. me. But nobody never came. To and they could find me. They knew where I was and they know who I was because they knew exactly mm -hmm. what bed and house I was in because they, they know everybody. They know where everybody at. You can report a sexual assault to a police officer and I'm going to tell you what they say. You have no damn business out here tricking. They don't report none of them unless, for some reason or another, you know, got assaulted so bad that the ambulance and everything had to come. But it, but, but it has been told to me.
personally, when I because I've been raped numerous times by clients and knew the clients and could tell them what was and they was like, you ain't got no, you ain't had no business out here tricking and they ain't report, they don't report. Shit. Excuse my expression. You know, you flag him down, and you know, you say, I just got, you know, I just got raped. And he go, he walking down the street, he right there in the blue jeans. Right? They be like, you ain't had no business tricking, and pull off. Then they don't, they don't have no, they don't do their job. It's just like, we just trash. Like something to be thrown away. Whatever happened to us, happened to us. And they, and they, and they join in with the, with the noise. And that's how you made, you made to feel like, and the only way you gonna survive out there in the streets with the police is you just got to do what they do what they want you to do, or take the abuse that they the neglect that they give you, keep them from being locking you up so, because you don't want to get locked up and be over there sick and ill off of drugs because they know you're on drugs and they know that's where they got their upper hand at. I'm gonna tell you about the the last one that happened to me. I went with a trick. I went down and next thing and and, and this this and it's quick and fast. It's, it's easy to explain. Next thing I know, I was waking up. He he had. He had, I was, we had went down underneath this house, the steps in the back, so, you know, the, for the cover. And next thing I know, I was waking up and I seen him running down the alley. He had just choked me out. I guess he thought I was dead. And, and thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Mm. He, um, mm, mm, mm. when I got my stuff together, I said, I was blinking. And, and it came to my mind, oh, my God, this man just choked me out. And this boy, brother. And he was, and I seen him running down the alley, looking back, cause I guess he thought I was dead. And I, and I knew he had raped me, cause my pants was down. But I was out just long enough for him. I, I guess he's, he might have made me, maybe not have raped me, but he got scared. I could tell the way he was running, and I, I let him run. I didn't try to, you know, I, I, I stayed still, and I, and I let him go, let him run. When I, when he got out of sight, I came out the alley and I was staggering because I knew my I guess my eyes had been cut off and, and everything, and I seen a police officer and I stopped him and I told him what happened and you know what he told me he, he did say this he said you should be glad you're not dead he said but ain't it's nothing I can do he said what what you expect for us to do run after every one of y'all tricks because y'all put yourself in that predicament you need to stop tricking and pulled off. And I refused to die on the street and, and have nobody care about me. Even if I died out in the street, they'd probably just write it up and say, another another prostitute dead from tricking. And that's it. Because that's all, that's, all, that's all you hear. That's all you see on the paper. That's all you hear on the news. They don't hear a further investigation, nothing like that. They just say, another so-and-so, so-and-so, known for prostitution in that area. You feel like it's no use of reporting it because the police don't do nothing about it. They tell you, they tell you, you shouldn't be doing it. So why report to the police for? And then he might ask you to give do it to him, because you because you reported it to him. So have sex with them. They might even you, you go report somebody abusing you sexually. They might ask you for some head or for some sex. And if you say, can I speak to your sergeant? Or I want to see a sergeant. They, they look, they ignore you. That's all there is to it. They they, they don't can't report it to nobody because they ignore you. You can't even get nobody because they ignore you. Because you you are tricky. You are a prostitute. So it's like you have no rights. And so as soon as they find out you're a prostitute, that's it. Report in the trash. They are so rotten. It is sad. You're listening to The Mark Steiner Show, and I'm outgoing senior producer Stephanie Mavronis. This is a special report in the wake of the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division releasing their investigation of the Baltimore City Police Department. 
What you've been hearing are excerpts from a few of the complaints submitted to the DOJ that informed a section of their findings, which concern the intersections of gender, sexuality, and the police department. When we come back from this break, we hear more of those complaints and understand how sexuality fits into these interactions with police. Stay with us. Welcome back. You're listening to The Mark Steiner Show. I'm outgoing senior producer Stephanie Mavronis, and this is a special report on the intersections of gender, sexuality, and the Baltimore Police Department in the wake of the DOJ Civil Rights Division releasing their investigation of the Baltimore City Police Department earlier this week. A reminder, the content of these complaints, which were given to the DOJ as part of their Baltimore investigation, is very graphic and at times disturbing. It might not be suitable for children, and listener discretion is advised. We'll be making this podcast and a transcript of today's show available online at steinershow.org. From the testimony we've heard so far, it's clear that there's another element to police interactions with women who are addicted to drugs or involved in the sex trade or both. But sexuality is another factor that compounds race and gender in police interactions. One of the DOJ complaints was from Sean, who's young, male, black, and gay. He's a survivor of same-sex domestic violence, an issue that is hardly acknowledged in the LGBT community, often leaving victims with very little support. He's a student who works to help Baltimore youth. This is the audio from Sean's DOJ testimony. When I first met a cop and I was telling him the story about what happened to me, and he was just sort of playful, he wasn't really taking me serious. I felt he was very inappropriate when he was... He, um... Oh my god, it's so hard to talk about. He asked, um, so you really put it on him? Like, sexually. Like, I was in his car, the cop's car. I was just sort of quiet, I was sort of like, still like, shaking up. That's when he had asked me. He was kind of joking, saying like, oh, you must have really put it on him. And I felt that was like, really inappropriate. At first, I thought maybe he was doing his job, where he's saying, like, oh, maybe you two were fighting or anything like that. And I was like, no, I'm still, like, shaking up or whatever. But then when he was insinuating that I was sort of sexually so good that it sort of, like, drove the guy, the other guy crazy. And that was just really uncomfortable for me. I just kind of, like, laughed nervously and just mm-hmm. sort of brushed it off. I was I was reporting like how he hit me and uh, how long he was forcing me to stay inside the room and inside the house and how he wasn't letting me leave and stuff like that. He was harassing me like by phone and looking for me at my place of work and kind of wandering around my neighborhood and stuff. And I've been asked a number of times like. Not by this cop, but I was asked by this cop, but I was asked by other cops, you know, were we sexually involved, were we sexually involved? And maybe that was doing a job, but the, the other, that one instance where he was saying that I was so good, I felt that was really inappropriate. I feel like he wasn't really receptive, and he wasn't even, like, taking notes or anything like that. In his complaint... Sean says that when he went to court for the domestic violence incident, the officer who was involved in the case never showed up. Also, it was just really stressful to just be there and be in the same room with that person for them to not 
hear my case because, oh, an officer wasn't present. The officer that originally filed wasn't present at the court hearing. That was the other incident that he, he just wasn't showing up. That's what the judge said. Um, we didn't have, we, we can't um, per, like proceed with it or something like that because the original officer wasn't here. Of course, the abuser wasn't really being truthful about what he did and that was just emotional in itself, but for the officer to not show up, that was just, it was a strain on me. I really feel like they thought that maybe we were fighting each other and it wasn't really a domestic violence situation. I don't really think they understood what was happening and I think they didn't believe me that I wasn't fighting back. They were really discrediting it a lot and just trying to like blow it off, especially the male officers that I would speak to. I'm definitely a bit standoffish to male officers just because I don't know how they would really deal with a person, a queer person, or someone who's dealing with a, a crime that maybe it's a hate crime or something like this, which is an intimate partner violence with two males. Jada, a young black woman who recently and unexpectedly passed away, echoed the kind of gendered treatment she received as an out and proud lesbian woman. Jada was incarcerated at a very young age but turned her life around. Despite the challenges she faced in getting work with a criminal record, she worked hard to get work where she could, even if it required long public transit commutes. She defied all stereotypes of what was possible for a woman with a felony record and she committed herself to rescuing animals and bringing women together to reduce violence inside of women's prisons. Here's Jada in her DOJ testimony. I was gone for the holidays. In my area where I live at, it's been like a lot of break-ins and robbery. And because someone resembled my height and weight and a wear boy clothes, they assumed it was me. So I just so happened to be coming back from out of town, and I'm talking to one of the neighbors, and police come up to me. And then just out of the blue, just asked me for my ID. So I'm trying to figure out, well, what he needed my ID for. He said he had a report that I had broken to the store or something. I don't even know what he's talking about. So I asked him, well, can I see the videotape? Or is there a videotape or something to prove this? Because I was out of town, so I don't know what you're talking about. He wouldn't give me any information. He assumed I was a guy at first. And I kept telling him I'm a female. He wanted to search me and all that. And I'm like, no, you're not going to search me because you don't have proper cause to actually search me. But he was trying to. I guess he was trying to say because I wasn't going to show him my ID. Like, he had every right to, like, frisk me to see if I had any weapons on me or anything like that. I wasn't doing nothing. I'm standing there talking to my neighbor. I'm not loitering or nothing. We all standing outside just talking and enjoying ourselves. And he just came out of nowhere and basically was harassing me for real. And I guess once he really realized that I was a female, it still took him about 10, 15 minutes before he called the female officer. Then when she came, I explained the whole situation to her. I don't know what they discussed on the sideline. All I know is when she came back to me, she was like, everything's okay. We'll, you know, look more into it. And then after they look more into it, I asked her, could I get a report of it? Because that was like harassment to me because you harassed me. And I don't know if he was just, you know, just being arrogant because I was a dominant female. And that's most male officers anyway, if you're a dominant female. Because I dress like a guy and 
I could be talking to a female. Like most male officers, you could be talking to a female and they feel some type of way about it. Like we trying to take over the world or something like that. If she like females, she like females. That has nothing to do with you anyway. If we having our regular conversation, that's no reason for you to come over and just try to make a scene and then try to, I guess, like agitate me. So then when I do say something, you're not really locking me up for anything serious, but you're locking me up for disorderly conduct mm-hmm. or try to say I was loitering. When the whole time I'm not even loitering. We could be walking and talking and just stop for a minute. Oh, you've been standing here too long. Let me talk to you for a minute. Stuff like that. They have an ego problem. And it intimidates, I guess, dominant females intimidates the male character. Because if it was the regular female and she had on her girl clothes and she walking, a male officer would treat her different, be nice to her. He might even try to holler at her and do all that. I didn't even have him try to holler at me and do all that. Like, sir, just do whatever you're going to do and let me keep on walking. I'm not bothering you. Don't bother me. I'm trying to get where I'm getting at and you holding me out. I don't miss buses and all that just because officers just want to be petty for no reason. And then just write you a simple ticket. Like, what is this ticket for? For nothing. You've been sitting on the bus stop too long. I got to wait for the bus. How am I going to get home? I got a bus pass. I even had it happen to me when I was getting off of work one day. It was some stuff going on downtown. I ain't had nothing to do with that. I'm staying there, just getting off of work. If I wouldn't have had my uniform on, they was going to lock me up. I ain't had nothing to do with nothing that was going on. I'm just waiting for the bus to get home. I still had my uniform on. That's the only thing. Like, look, sir, I just got off of work. I don't even know what you're talking about. I ain't got nothing to do with what just happened. I just got right here from off the other bus. I'm waiting for my next bus to go home. That's it. They ain't care. They called the paddy wagon and everything. They really was trying to take me down. If I ain't had my uniform on, it probably would have locked me up for real. You didn't, I didn't have some of them just, like, really say little, like, cuss me out or try to, you know, come at me, like, ask you something that if you want to be a, a man, I could treat you like a man with your woman the whole time. I could show you how to be a woman. Stupid stuff like that. In her complaint, Jada describes a time when she was at a bar with a female friend and got hassled by the police while smoking a cigarette outside. Now, if I'm with my female friend, they get to stay in the bar. I can go outside and smoke a cigarette. Next thing you know, I can't even go back in the bar. You got to move. No, you're not going in there. And the child's playing, so I'm old enough. I can, you know, have a little drink and enjoy myself and chill. I ain't bothering nobody. I ain't doing nothing. No, you have to get off the premises. Jada also describes an encounter with police at her home during a New Year's Eve party. Everybody was in the house. We was in the house in the backyard. And I guess the name was Mighty Card and said it was too much commotion going on or something. I don't even know what the story was. But once the office came in, the more focus was on me than anything. Because I'm trying to figure out, well, like, what's going on? This is my house, sir. So ain't nobody really bothering nobody. But just out the blue, most of the attention was basically on me. Well, you need to clear the house and do this and do that. And I'm like, well, sir, it's New Year's. Everybody's having a good time. There's people out here partying, too. Their music is more louder than my music. So what do you mean? Well, just because it's me and me dressing, and then it was a house full of females. And then I had my little, you know, my gay homeboys in there, and they had their boyfriends in there. And everybody just mingling. I had some of the neighbors in there, too. Like, everybody just mingling. But it was more focused on me than anything. And my homeboys, them being gay, and they just looking around, like, you know, giving certain looks towards them. Like, are y'all done? Y'all can just go ahead on about y'all business. Y'all done? Ain't nobody doing nothing in here. There's nothing going on. When they just told me to turn the moves down, it's going, you know, at a certain time, just go ahead and clear the house out. And if they had to come back, I'd be the one getting locked up. Like, I ain't really, like, argue, argue back with them. I just let my homegirl, my little friend, I let them take over. You go ahead and talk to them. When they started talking to the officer, he was all smiles and skinning and grinning, talking to him and everything. But you was just sitting up here having a big problem with me. But then you smiling in their face because they were dressed more feminine. Like, it's a problem just dressing in a dominant way or just dressing in male clothes and stuff like that. Now, if I had on girl clothes, they'd probably just be hitting on me and then they'd just let me go. It's wrong. Like, how you going to treat me like that, but you don't treat the average person like that? And there ain't too much you can do about it because they the police. It ain't like once they lock you up, you got to go through the whole process of sitting there, getting booked, then get fingerprinted and all that. 
just for you to get around to the place and they say, oh, we won't let you out on your own recon. Because it ain't too much you say, and the more you sit a damn child, oh, or what was the officer name, oh, we can't find a report. Like, one time when I had got locked up, a guy had robbed a bar, and me and my friends was walking towards, like, I think we was going to my homegirl house, and we was walking. They walking and talking, I'm talking to my little friend, and we steady walking. So just out the blue, the officer hops out the car, put your hands up, what am I putting my hands up for? I'm still telling the whole time I'm female, we got a report that there was a robber around here, and the person seen you, the guy said he seen me running out the bar. How you see me running out the bar and I just walked out the house and we all walking together, walking up the street. So I'm trying to explain to him and he still didn't believe me. So he called the female officer. The female officer grabbed my ID, took all that. They locked me up, did all that, took my ID. When they released me, they never gave me none of my IDs back, none of that. And then they just let me out the next morning, a couple of hours later. They just let me out. Well, you you can get released. Well, where my stuff at? We don't have no reports that he took anything. Well, how y'all know my name even write me up to do any of that? Because I didn't give them anything. It wasn't me. I didn't rob no store. I don't even know what you're talking about. I just walked out the house. So I had to go with the process, getting my IDs and all that back again. When they locked me up that day, they slammed me up on the ground and slammed me straight down. And it was the guy officer. When they took my ID, they just straight slammed me on the ground. And the whole time I'm telling them female, you ain't got to use that sexual force, none of that. You can just tell the female to do whatever. They slammed me all around. I didn't know what was going on. As you can see, I'm a whole female. I don't even have one of that clothes that you talking about. So where are you getting this from? Then I'm walking with a whole bunch of people. So you telling me I went and robbed the whole store, made it all the way around here in no time, and changed clothes that quick and just started walking with somebody. You can tell them all day long you're a female. If the female cop don't get that time enough or a female cop ain't on duty automatically, then they just get away with it. Because it's your word against theirs. So what can you possibly say? Then the first thing they say, oh, maybe in disorderly. They intoxicated and all this, a whole bunch of nonsense for nothing. I don't think nothing's really going to help because they don't care. They don't really understand. They don't care about people being lesbians, gays, any of that. They feel how they feel. Oh, no, you don't need to be. It's more crazy if it was a feminine female and another fem feminine female, they okay with it. But if it's a dominant female and a feminine female, they don't like it. If it's man or man, they don't like it. Then you have the regular females, feminine films, they deal with it too. Officer saying, why you got to deal with a dumb, you need a man in your life and all this, why don't you come holler at me and stuff like that. Despite these experiences, not everyone thinks the police are all bad. Here's Gail again from her DOJ complaint. All police not bad, because I, I done met some police that truly could have locked me up. You understand? But they turned the other cheek, you know, you respect me, I respect you. The Department of Justice found that the majority of white residents they interviewed saw the Baltimore police as respectful and responsive. The majority of black residents said that officers were regularly disrespectful. In her DOJ complaint, when asked whether she trusts the police, Jada responded, In most situations, I'd rather just take care of myself. Unless it's like, you know, something that's dead serious and they arrive on time and it could be something serious. But for the most part, no. Despite what they've experienced, women like Kiera and Nia have ideas for what needs to change for the police to really be held accountable. In her DOJ complaint, Nia stressed the need for jobs in the community and a clear policy around body cameras and their use by the police. It's happening because they have nobody where, where it can be recorded. If I stop a police officer, he got that body camera. If, it's, if they're mandatory to turn them on at the beginning of their shift, mm -hmm and mandatory to turn all, only off at the end of that shift, it'll work. Because if I stop you, a police officer, and I stop you for any reason, and that body cam is on, then 
you gonna why you gonna do your job because you can't turn it off on my on my interview. Me telling you something is wrong. You are gonna have to because it's mm-hmm. like forcing them. I think that as long as, long as they can't turn it off while they're on duty, mm-hmm. that's the only way it's gonna work. I want y'all to speak up regardless. And places like Power Inside and other places like that, go there and report it to them. They can help you. Y'all can help. Y'all can help people help us get the things that we need, the story, because they'll listen to y'all because y'all are not prostituting. But y'all can, y'all can like, be our representative. Help us get through to these people and let them know that we're people, too. And everybody deserves a second chance. Everybody deserves for their rights not to be taken from them. Kiera, in her DOJ complaint, made a case for legalizing sex work. They should legalize it so they start saying it's prostitution. Then it'd be some. Then it'd be a lot of people with a job. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot of stuff going on out there. I know it's still going on out there. All I know is I, when I do be down this way, I see certain officers still there out here. So I know they're doing the same thing. Yeah, if you ain't the courts, you ain't gonna change. You gonna do the same thing. The reason I'm doing something different because I ain't trying to get caught. <laughs> so you will get caught eventually when you're doing bad stuff. But none of the dog come to the light. Mm-hmm. You'll get caught. It shows. You think you're getting away with it. Mm-mm. You ain't getting away with nothing. We've heard testimony from five people, four women and one man. There might be a tendency to shrug off these complaints as being from only a few people. But one thing the DOJ report found after months and months of interviews and thorough research was that in Baltimore, there's a general lack of respect for the community's police officers' police, especially if those communities are predominantly black. The DOJ found regular unprofessionalism and bias in the way Baltimore police officers police the streets of Baltimore. It's not a leap to understand how a general attitude of disrespect, disregard, and unprofessionalism in how you police would also manifest itself when not only race, but also gender and sexuality enter into the equation. For many in Baltimore, especially when you're black and living in a predominantly black neighborhood, these kinds of interactions with the police are a part of daily life. These interactions come when you're on your way to work, waiting for the bus, or walking around with friends. But if you're still having trouble seeing this problem as a systemic one, there's more evidence in the fact that this kind of gender bias in policing has become a national phenomenon. In December of last year, former Oklahoma City police officer Daniel Holtzclaw was convicted on multiple counts of rape and sexual abuse and was sentenced to 263 years in prison. His victims were all black women, the majority of whom had records from drug arrest and being involved in the sex trade. Women in Baltimore talked about how police would make assumptions based off of their criminal backgrounds, which then could be leveraged for sex in some instances. That was one of Officer Holtzclaw's tactics as well. Then, in the process of making this report, the Oakland story broke. It was found that over the past 20 years, a group of police officers from Oakland and other agencies in the Bay Area were soliciting sex workers, engaging in unofficial informant relationships, sexually harassing victims of crime, and coercing sex, sometimes with underage girls. It resulted in the resignation of the Oakland police chief, the investigation into officers in other area police departments who were implicated in the Oakland probe, the resignation of implicated officers, and the investigations of officials across multiple law enforcement agencies. Police have power and authority in our society, and they're given that power with the goal that they'll keep us safe. But it's clear that that power and authority can also be used to target some of the most vulnerable members of our city, 
those that we might also be least likely to believe when they speak up because of their prior criminal records, because of the time they spent addicted to drugs, and because of the time they were involved in the sex trade. With these testimonies and with the DOJ's detailed report, the Baltimore police and the city of Baltimore as a whole have a real opportunity to make radical reforms and changes. They're changes that must be made on the policy level, concerning things like warrants, bail, and the citizen reporting process. There are deeply systemic issues that the police department must address, from the race and gender biases in policing the DOJ report highlighted, and the transphobia, homophobia, and misogyny that runs through the department and throughout much of our society. This is a classic example of what happens when the most vulnerable people in our society interact with those who have power and authority. There's no better example to really highlight the true definition of structural racism. It's the intersection of racism, misogyny, and power. But this is also a light because there's a real opportunity here to explicitly look at police abuse through an intersectional lens, to wrestle with the lived experiences we heard today and what is written in the DOJ report. If done honestly, we can be on a path towards healing our city. I wanted to remind you that if what you've heard in this program is also your experience and you want to talk about it or seek remedy for it, one of the places you can reach out to for support is Power Inside. Power Inside is interested in connecting with people out there who want to identify solutions. You can reach them at 410-889-8333 or at contact at powerinside.org. For The Mark Steiner Show, I'm Stephanie Mavronis. We want to thank Power Inside and everyone who reported what happened to them and especially to Steiner Show senior producer Stephanie Mavronis, who took this story into our heart, interviewed and met with these women, and produced this powerful piece of radio. We'll also be linking to journalist Baynard Wood's story that appeared in The Guardian. Stay tuned for more conversations on this really important issue facing Baltimore and our country in the coming days and weeks ahead here on The Mark Steiner Show. And I want to thank you all for listening to this story produced by Stephanie Mavronis for the Center for Emerging Media and The Mark Steiner Show. The Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our senior producer is Mark Gunry. Our outgoing senior producer who worked on today's special is Stephanie Mavronis. Our producer is Amani Spence. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our interns are Morgan Barber and Calvin Perry. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. And the music for today's broadcast was created and produced by Mark Steiner Show senior producer Mark Gunry. And send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. I'm dying to hear what you think about what you just heard today. And to podcast The Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, I'm Mark Steiner. Think and get involved about how we can change our society and make this a better and safer place for all of us. Have a wonderful weekend. Take care.